This morning we're going to be doing a one hour or 45 minute walkthrough of the book of Galatians. So if you didn't already get a copy of these notes, we've got them here. We've got a bunch up front and maybe Bob would run around. So anybody need it? Raise your hand if you need Bob to give you one back here, bro. There's a couple in the way back corner, this side. Okay, so Bob will give you Galatians and um, grab that. Also, if you've missed anything in the past that we've talked about, the whole set, the growing set is up here. So you can come up and grab anything you want for any of the previous weeks. And also, I'll always have these little yellow cards up here. These yellow cards give you the web addresses. They're actually shortcuts, shortcut web addresses to uh, where the digital files for these are all stored, the print digital, the PDFs, and also where the audio files are stored for this, for this class. So, if you, like two weeks ago, last week we didn't meet because it was Labor Day, which I didn't mention two weeks ago, so sorry about that if you showed up. Um, uh, but two weeks ago we did Jude, three weeks ago we did Second Peter. If you missed any of those and you wanted to hear that or get the digital copies, they're all here. You can grab these yellow cards if you want those addresses. Cool? All right, so our goal here is to cover every book in the New Testament, 27 books over a span of probably about 30 weeks. There's a couple, you know, Romans got a couple weeks. Some of them will get a couple weeks, mostly one week. Um, and the purpose is to help you so that when you go back and you read Galatians on your own, when you read Jude on your own, you'll kind of know some of the things to look for. The goal is to make it so that this, this book and all the treasures that are in it will be easier for you to find. Things, things that I think would be good to have on your radar. Hey, Zipporah. How you doing? All right. Good, good work. Um, and today we're going to do Galatians. So tell me what you know about Galatians. Give me, before you walked in this room already, what did you already know about Galatians here? Brother man, Eric. You're a Judy after the manifold, just cut it all off. Okay, so there is a lot going on there. So uh, Eric says if you're a Judaizer, you might, just, might as well just go ahead and cut it all off. Judaizer may not be a very obvious term for some. What that means is that Jesus was Jewish and he came as the Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people. And then a bunch of non-Jews started coming to the party. A bunch of Gentiles started coming into the party. And a Judaizer would be somebody that says to a non-Jew, hey, 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 if you want to come to our party, you got to first become like us. You must be Judaized. You must be, it'd be like saying, you know, if you want to be a foreigner coming to America, you got to become a U.S. citizen if you want to stay here. Something analogous to that. So the Judaizers told the Gentiles, stop it. If you want to come, you've got to be like us. And in particular, Eric's little uh, comment of he may as well go ahead and cut the whole thing off. What that is a reference to is the Judaizers were saying, if you want to become, if a Gentile wants to become a follower of Jesus, they need to become circumcised. And Paul is so aggravated by those that are telling people you need to be circumcised. He says, he literally says, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and cut the whole thing off. He's like, I wish those guys would just castrate themselves. I'm so annoyed with them. Okay, so that's a strong start. Eric, thank you for that. Okay, Galatians. What else do you guys know about Galatians? Foolish. Foolish. The Galatians, he accuses them of being foolish. Okay, you foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Christ was portrayed as crucified. And Paul is a little bit on a tear, okay? So I'll just tell you this. Those two data points that we got, the first two things you said support my, kind of my contention about this book. It's far and away Paul's angriest letter. 
He tells people they should castrate themselves. He calls people fools. He does a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, he is extremely, uh, what would you say, agitated, exercised. He's angry throughout this letter, okay? Gil? Also puts the fruit of the Spirit in this letter, right? Yes, okay, this is interesting. And so this book, it's, it's pretty angry. We find out the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience. It's all, so, and so it's actually an interesting question, and we'll, we'll get there as the, as, the, uh, as the class wears on. How do we go from being angry at the Judaizers all wrapped around circumcision into the fruit of the Spirit? Is this just a PS add-on? Does it have any logical coherence to what preceded it? We'll, we'll get to that before the time is out. Excellent. Fetzer? It's probably one of the earliest letters he's, he ever wrote. Okay, so Andy says it's one of the earliest letters, possibly one of the earliest letters that Paul ever wrote. And this is a, hard, this is a little bit of a hard thing, and there's an implication to how we date Galatians. Um, when, we, when we look at these, there's different ways or reasons or evidence that we use to date this. You know, we don't have anything that says, Paul, you know, 40 AD. You don't, you don't, you don't get information like that on this thing. And this one is difficult. It's, not, it's difficult to date, or it's... The dating that you choose, the dating that you believe is so, is complicated because of how it, how it relates to the book of Acts. Are you right in on this controversy? What's going on with this? Okay. So I'll, I'll mention it. Uh, I'll mention it now. We can address it maybe later if we want to. But the, the event going on here in Galatians is all about, the whole thing is about this controversy. Do Gentiles need to become Jews? Do Gentiles need to get circumcised? Okay? That exact same controversy occurs in the book of Acts. Do you guys know where it occurs in the book of Acts? 15-ish. Chapter 15-ish, because it's 15 actually. So well done, Lily. Okay. So if you, if you go through and you read Acts 15, you will see like people are like, hey, do the Jews need to become, or the Gentiles need to become Jews? They need to be circumcised and they have this council. It's kind of like the first uh, church council. This is a big question. We're not sure what to do. Let's get together and talk about it. And so if you read Acts 15 and you read Galatians, in particular Galatians 2, you're like, wow, these things are really similar, but there are some differences. And it's hard to know, did Galatians happen earlier than Acts? I don't think it's exactly the same time as Acts 15. Did it happen before Acts 15? Did it happen after Acts 15? And so the way that you answer that is going to influence how you, how you date it, right? And by the way, just if, if, when you, if you read through Galatians 2, if you read Acts 15, the most obvious difference will be... Well, do you know what the most obvious difference will be? And what kind of like the fly in the ointment here? In Acts 15, Peter is on the side of these, Jew, these Gentiles should be allowed in the church without becoming Jews. He's defending against the Judaizers. He's defending the welcome of Gentiles. And in Galatians 2, that is not true. In Galatians 2, Paul rebukes Peter. He gets in his face and he says, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile, and yet you force the, Jews, the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. And Paul goes after Peter hard. You don't see any of that in Acts 15. So either Peter once knew it, Acts 15 comes first, and he uh, begins to kind of slip out of gear due to social pressure. It results in Galatians 2. Or Galatians 2 happens first. Peter gets rebuked, kind of cleans up his act, and then Acts 15 happens later on, and he's kind of been, he's been corrected by Paul and stays in it. And I don't actually know which of those is true. There's evidence that suggests both. I don't know. So if Andy goes with early letter, then he would, that would suggest that, that 
Peter got rebuked by Paul and then cleaned up his act by Acts 15. And that might be true. I just don't happen to know. Okay, one or two more things you want to throw in about Galatians before I try to organize it all? Dan? Uh, it's kind of mini Romans. It is mini Romans. It is sometimes referred to as that. And what is it that makes it Romans-esque? Just the, the theological progression through the book. Yes. You know, we're broken. We need God. Jesus is the way. Yes, very much so. And, in, and the, the very strong focus of Romans, of external righteousness, credited to you, received as a gift, is very much present in the book of Galatians. So you can look at Galatians through this lens. And this is, of course, is, maybe not of course, this is, this is why the Galatian controversy, the, the circumcision controversy, is so important. Because if we're made right before God by our ceremonial observances, by our religious practices, by our fulfillment of the legal obligations of circumcision, then, as Paul puts it, if righteousness, he's going to say this in Galatians, he says, if righteousness could be gained through the law, well, then Christ died for nothing. So what's the point of all this? And so you see, in, in both Romans and Galatians, Paul is a ferocious advocate for a righteousness not based on observance to the law, but rather a righteousness that is based on faith in Christ imparted as an act of grace, right? Very, very strong. So if you read Romans, you kind of get ginned up on external righteousness imputed to us by faith, and then you read Galatians, you're going to be like, ah, yes, I'm on Paul's side on this. Very, very similar ideas. Okay, Catherine. That was the same uh, was That's right. So Catherine is saying Abraham was considered righteous before he was circumcised. And by the way, you're going to get Romans. He's going to, Romans is going to, in Romans, Paul is going to try to prove his point by appealing to Abraham. In Galatians, he's going to try to prove his point by appealing to Abraham. So you see a lot of these kind of consistencies. Dorian? Also, doesn't Paul in Galatians defend the fact that he doesn't go into ministry right away? Um, yeah, well, he doesn't defend, so Dorian asked the question, doesn't Paul defend the fact that he didn't go into, into ministry right away? And he's not defending the fact of that. He uses the fact of that to defend the authenticity of his message. He's like, listen, I got this directly from God, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm trustworthy. He kind of walks through this. He spent 14 years here, and he does this, and he met this one. And, and he's, he kinda, it's, it's one of the places we usually will pull Paul's testimony Paul's kind of conversion story out of a couple places in Acts, both where it happens in Acts, and then he tells the story twice when he's on trial. But then our, kind of the fourth point of that is Galatians, where Paul gives us yet another kind of vantage point on how he goes from being oppositional to Christ to being a leader in the movement. So yes, we, get, well, we can watch through all that. Okay, one or two more things, we good? Okay, Bob? Like the Galatians are a region, Galatians are a region rather than a specific city that uh, Paul often writes. That's right. Okay, that's that's an interesting little little bit of a note, and there's maybe one semi one theological thing worth knowing there. So we say, you know, the letter to the Thessalonians, Thessalonica is a city. The letter to the Ephesians, Ephesus is a city. The letter to who am I saying? Corinth, Corinth is a city, okay? And you would, it would be reasonable to think the letter to the Galatians, Galatia is a city, and you'd be wrong, okay? Gal think about Galatia more like a state, right? So we got a letter to Chicago and a letter to L.A. and a letter to New York and a letter to Virginia, okay? So this is a letter to 
the region of Galatia. And what makes that a little bit interesting theologically is that the Bible always treats cities as having one church. There's a church in Corinth. There's a church in Richmond. But there are churches, plural, in Galatia, right? So if you look at the way he he writes his letters, you know, to the church in Thessalonica, to the church in Corinth, he's specifically going to pluralize it in the opening of Galatians. Okay, so just note that. All right, good enough. Let's try to kind of organize it. So it is, as I said, uh, easily Paul's angriest letter. He is super hot. And he's not hot just because this just happens to be an annoyance to him, but because he sees the graveness, the significance, the urgency of this theological error. And not just how deep the error is, that if we move away from a righteousness imputed by Christ, computed from Christ, but received by grace through faith into a works righteousness. He's like, the whole gospel is long. It's gone. Look at how he says this. If you go to Galatians 1, well, actually, I have it on here. Look at this 1.6. He says, he just comes right out of the gate so strong. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, parenthetically, which is really no gospel at all, Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've said again, as as we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. This is strong language. And the whole, so we're, we're, We're saying it's a different gospel, it's no gospel, it's a perversion of the gospel. Whoever's teaching this should be eternally condemned. And let's say that one a second time. Later on, we're going to threaten them with emasculation, castration. Like, the stakes are super high. And so Paul is not kind of diddling around the edges on this. He just comes at it hard. This is a big deal. Massive, massive implications if we screw up the gospel of grace. Okay? So that's the first thing maybe to capture. He's super mad because it really, really matters. Um, the topic is all about circumcision, we've already said. And that might be a little bit strange in our context because we don't gener- you know, generally think a great deal about that. And I think the reason we don't think about it is because Paul won the debate, right? This question has been answered and answered definitively. So the church has never, since this time, has not really struggled with should we, shouldn't we, do we have to, do we need to? Um, but at that time, it was a very live action. Um, the letter is going to advocate very much for a salvation by faith alone, which again is why it's so akin to the book of Romans. When you read through it, you're going to find lots of great language. Um, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is here in Galatians in chapter 2.20. He says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? He says, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law. Christ died for nothing. Paul is deeply interested in the, throughout this book that we would come to understand, that we would come to embrace, that we would seize and never let go of a righteousness given as a gift and received by faith. In the midst of it, though, he's going to have to clean up a couple messes, okay? If we stopped right there and just said, okay, yeah, you know, you don't need to be circumcised as salvation by faith alone, there's at least two main questions that you're going to be left with, Okay? One of them is, okay, noted, we don't need to follow the circumcision laws. So what is the deal with the law, 
right? How are we to, what, what's the, do we just throw out the Old Testament? Or do we throw out like the Pentateuch? Do we bother to read the Ten Commandments? If we're saved by grace through faith we don't, and not through adherence to the law, what is the purpose of the law? Does this make sense? So like he's got to address like how do we think of Moses? How do we think of the law? So after he's finished making his case, he's got to go on and clean up that mess. And then there's another mess that's a little bit, maybe a little bit less obvious, which is this. If I don't get to threaten you with punishment when you don't keep the friggin' rules, what do I do? How do we get you to keep the rules? If we're not constraining sin, if we're not compelling righteousness by talking about adherence to the law, what do we do? What else is, what else is there going to be? And what is Paul's answer to that? Do you know? Say it loud. I think it's the Holy Spirit. It, it is the Holy Spirit's job. And this is exactly why Galatians, Galatians 5 is ground zero for the fruit of the Spirit. He's going he's gonna, to, after he said, it's not through the law, it's not through the law, it's not through the law. You're like, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, fine. It's not through the law. But does that mean that we live licentious lives? Is it just complete antinomianism? And his answer is, no, 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 hang on a second. If you live according to that, it's going to lead to death. The acts of sinful nature are obvious. And he lists all these things, right? And he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience. And against such things, there is so law. So the, if you ever wonder, like, why does Galatians, why does this thing that's so wrapped around circumcision give us this exalted picture of, the, of life in the Spirit? It's because we just got rid of the law as a function of restraint in our lives. And God has offered us something new, namely his self living in us, shaping us making us love new things. That's kind of where that all fits in. Okay? Does that all make sense? So as you read through, you're going to follow, the, follow all of that. Um, and then there's a couple of freebie bonuses, and we'll, we'll get to that as we kind of walk through this. How much time do I have? Yeah, we've got plenty of time. Um, one of the things that I want you to notice, uh, you'll see it when you read through Galatians, it's really, okay, so Paul is never original. He's never making anything up. All that he's doing is explaining things that Jesus said and did. He's explaining things that Moses has, Moses has said. He's steeped in the life of Christ, and he's steeped in the Old Testament. And so one thing that Jesus was brilliant about, that if you read the Gospels, you'll begin to notice this pattern. And Paul is going to pick this up. It's going to be a little bit more subtle than a lot of things. But Jesus loves to say something akin to this, that there are not two kinds of people in the world. There are three. Okay? We have a tendency to say there is religion and there is irreligion. And religion is good and irreligion is bad. And so stop being this irreligious pagan and come over here and be this good religious person. But Jesus never, ever, ever says that. In fact, he just knocks that Jenga tower over time and time again. So Jesus loves to tell stories where there are these two characters, one who is religious and one who is irreligious, right? Can you think of him doing this, right? Say it again. Okay, so the prodigal son, we can do it with the prodigal son. Let's get, a, let's get a handful of these. Where does Jesus like to do this? The good Samaritan, very good. Where does he do this? And the good Samaritan is like, there's the good Samaritan, he's the irreligious person, and then you got the priest and the Levite and all these religious people, right? Where else does he do it? Yes. That priest that says, I'm glad I'm not Right, you got these two people praying, and one is, one is here like beating his breast, like, I'm not even worthy to come before you. And then the other one is praying, God, I'm so glad that I am not like him, that I am so wonderful and righteous and good, right? So he sets up these two things, and then what Jesus always does, 
We've got this bad, irreligious person, this dirty Samaritan, and you've got this good, religious person, this Levite or this Pharisee. Then the story takes this horrible twist where the hero turns out to be a converted version of the irreligious guy, right? And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, you've got religion and irreligion. You think this is good, you think this is bad, and what I'm telling you is they're both bad. And instead what you need is some third thing that is neither one of these. And generally it is easier to get to the third one, shockingly, from the land of the irreligious, right? And that's what Jesus shows over and over again. You got the religious guy, who thinks he's self-righteous. You got the irreligious guy who he knows is unrighteous. And then you've got this one who has found imputed righteousness. And it's an entirely different thing. That, I'll show you that in a few minutes. That theme is gonna show up in the book of Galatians in a way that is a dramatic capturing and impressioning of the teaching of Jesus. That you think there's two ways to live, but I'm telling you there is a third. And it's the one that you want, okay? So we're gonna watch for that. And then what else do I want to show you? I think there's, I feel like there's one other thing. Uh, no, we'll, we'll stop there, okay? So these are the things to watch for. Let's take a look at some of the anger stuff, okay? So skim through on that front page. I already read you the astonished one. And then he's going to do this thing where he gets super in Peter's face, right? When the Jews began to draw back, he rebukes Peter. Um, and not even just Peter, but Barnabas. This is a big deal. Who is Barnabas to Paul, you guys? That would be his partner. He was his partner. That's right. What was the first thing you said? I said captain, wasn't he? Yes. So Barnabas was his partner, but he was something prior to being Paul's partner. Do you remember this? Yeah, Ellen? He was the one who brought Paul before the That's right. So, so when Paul becomes a Christian, nobody wants to touch him. They're all terrified of him. But Barnabas is the one guy that is willing to wade through all these frightened people and put his arm around Paul and welcome him in. So he's going to become Paul's partner. But before he's Paul's partner, he's Paul's like senior. He's his advocate. He's his sponsor. He's his gateway in. And then by this time, Barnabas is led astray. Peter is completely off the rails. It is a big deal. So Paul is writing. He's rebuking the leader of the church, the one who's, who's, rec- who's brought him in, it's incredible. Look at what he says there in that inset quote. He says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Remember how like chapter one sets this up? You're perverting the gospel. It's a different gospel. It's no gospel. And if you keep it up, you deserve to be condemned to hell. That, okay. He says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then you force the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not, quote, Gentile sinners, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Sounds like Romans, doesn't it? So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. That's about as clear as you can make it. That's a big deal, right? Then he's going to give uh, Eric's favorite verse in the Bible. is Galatians 5.12. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Um, it's, a, it's a big deal, okay? So that's all the stuff. So when you read through it, you might just highlight, man, Paul is really ticked about this. What's going on here? You'll, you'll see that. And I've just highlighted every time circumcision shows up, um, it's all over the letter. And he even says this. I want to hear, what do you guys think this means? He says, mark my words. This is five, two to three. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you 
that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Now, we live in the United States, and I don't know what the numbers are, but it's very likely that the majority of the men in this room are circumcised, right? It's, become, it's kind of like become standard medical practice in the United States for lots and lots and lots of people. So does it, if the Bible's true, and if we take the Bible literally, is it the case that any man in this room is lost forever and Christ will be of no value? If you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to you, every man who lets himself be circumcised, he's obligated to obey the whole law. So if you got circumcised when you were born, are you out of luck? And if not, why not? Because isn't that what the Bible says? You with me? Okay, Chris? Uh, if you use that as the clothing of righteousness that would make you atonable before the Lord, then yes. Uh, okay, so what Chris said is, if you use your circumcision as the cloak of your righteousness, then yes. Does this make sense? So it's not the fact, so, and Chris is right to kind of just punchline this. It is not being circumcised or not being circumcised Neither condition matters. But if because of your circumcised, if because you are circumcised, you feel like therein lies my righteousness, that is what Paul is saying is bad, bad news, right? So yeah, sure, it's like fine, no problem, either way. But if you're depending on it, it's like stop it. Now, here's the thing, and I'll come to you in a second, John. It's unlikely, very unlikely, that anyone in this room is depending on their circumcision to be their righteousness, Okay? Probably not. However, it is very likely that people in this room are depending on something else to be their righteousness. It's probably never even, your foreskin has probably never crossed your mind. And you're probably tired of me saying things like that, okay? (laughs) But it is very, very likely the case that your hope is not really in the finished work of Christ, but in something you've added to it. And so that is what we're talking about here. That is what this letter is about. So far, so good? Question. Okay. Question. Who's, Kelly? Oh, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to point out that the circumcision is an essential part of the Old Testament law, but it's not the only part. And so if you're depending on circumcision to cloak you in righteousness, that's why you're, good luck, because you have to fulfill the entire law. And there's lots beyond service. That's exactly right. That's right. So what Kelly is saying is, it's not just, is it, if, you, if, you, if you're depending on your circumcision, the law doesn't say if you're circumcised, you're saved. The law comes with what is it, 613 things, right? 613 specific obligations. And Paul is saying, listen, listen, time out. There's a fork in the road, okay? There is such a thing as works righteousness. There really is. There is a path which if you take and follow perfectly and completely, God will declare you righteous. And then there's a path of a righteousness that is given as a gift received by faith. And Paul says, be very careful, because if you start down the fork of works righteousness, you better finish the path, and good luck with that, because there's only been one person who has ever lived that was able to do that. 
and it's not you, right? So he's saying, if you go down this path, you've got to finish it, and you never can, which is what drives us to Christ, okay? So I'll come to you in a second. I promise John, and then we'll come back up to Lily. And keep in mind, too, that uh, all Jews who are in Jesus were circumcised when they came to Jesus. All were circumcised. You mean they had already been circumcised when they were eight, eight days old? That's right. So for the Jews, they're, they're not asking, the Jews aren't asking the Gentiles to do something they hadn't already done. But of course, they did it when they were eight days old, right? And they're demanding that they step into this. And that's where Paul's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. He's making one new man out of the two. The, the church will be comprised of Jews and Gentiles, not just J- Jews and Gentiles who became Jews. But he's, he's combining the two. Okay? Lily. So to try and kind of put a little neat bow on it, in part, you have both Abraham first received the covenant of circumcision and the promise, but it, it was his faith that was counted as righteousness, and circumcision was just the, the sign of the promise that God had already made. But I think what's cool about Galatians is that you have that argument, and then you leave from circumcision, and then you replace it with the Holy Spirit, who is the one who circumcises your heart. Yes. And so, but both of them, it's your faith is counted to as righteousness, and then you receive the promise. So the circumcision was the promise, but then also, you know, I will send the promise of my Father will be sent upon you, and you will receive the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of your inheritance. And so, it actually is kind of a very neat. It all it all fits together. So let me try to re- just summarize what Lily said in case you couldn't hear it. What, what, what you see in Abraham, this is, by the way, this is another Romans argument. In Romans 4, Paul makes the point that Abraham is the one to whom God said, I will credit you righteousness based on your faith, right? And, of course, Abraham is the father of the Jews. He's the one who, you know, he's circumcised, all this kind of stuff. But Paul says, hey, did you ever notice something? Did you notice that Abraham, that God credited righteousness to Abraham, was it before or after he got circumcised? And the answer is it was not after, it was before. And so in this way, Abraham is the father of those who are circumcised and believed, and he is the father of those who were not circumcised and believed, right? It's a very clever, interesting observation. And Lily's pointing out that in the same way that the circumcision, um, that real faith precedes the sign, in the same way what God is doing under the new covenant is there's this imputation of his gift and his grace and then these things that flow out into it, right? So there's a sequencing here that's consistent. Okay, Robin? Yes. Okay, so this is so interesting. Uh, so Timothy is, he has a, how does it go? He's got a Jewish mom and a Greek father. Do I have that reversed? His mom is Jewish, right? Um, and he's a Greek father. And so he's not circumcised as a baby. He's growing up in this kind of like in, inter, you know, he's, he's taught the scriptures from a young age, but he's never been circumcised. He becomes a follower of Christ, becomes a leader in the church, and Paul sends him out on a missionary journey. And in a radical departure from Galatians, he circumcises Timothy as like, you know, a 25-year-old, right? Which can't be any fun at all, okay? So how do we make, is Paul being inconsistent with the work in Galatia, or with the, with the message of Galatians? How, how are we to understand that? For the sake of time, let me just, I'll just answer that for you because there's a bunch of things I want to get to as well. Um, it's not at all inconsistent. He was not circumcising Timothy 
for Timothy's righteousness. He was not imputing to Timothy some gift of righteousness. Rather, what he was doing is he was making him culturally relevant. What he was doing would be more like, maybe, maybe you know this, um, Hudson Taylor. Do you, know what, do you know who Hudson Taylor is? What's he famous for? Missionary to China. And what in particular was new in his approach? Do you know what he did that was so odd? What did he do, Kelly? He dressed in their peril. He dressed in their peril. You can think of a missionary like showing up, you know, from England to China, wearing a coat and tie and doing thing and looking weird. He's like, you know, we're not going to do that. He puts on a silk, whatever they wear in China. He wears his mustache like a Chinese person. He enters into their culture so as to not bring cultural barriers to the thing. He's just making, it's just good missiology. He's making himself relevant in that context. And in a similar way, Timothy was like, okay, I will do what you do. It would be like, I don't know what ridiculous things Andy Fetzer has done, but he spent his whole life working with high school students, right? Which is what explains kind of his immaturity in a lot of ways, right? (laughs) And so you just, if you're going to hang out with high school kids all day, you just got to do high school kid stuff, right? That's what he's doing. So Timothy is not, Paul doesn't circumcise Timothy as a way to make him righteous. He's just dressing him up like a Chinese person because he's working with Chinese people. That's kind of what's, what's going on there, essentially. Okay? Now, since we're talking about Chinese people, that, that reminds me of one other thing. We are largely a white community here at Church of the Holy Spirit, right? And so the framing that I've just given you, this whole Galatian thing, is all through the lens of theology. It's all about doctrine. It's all about salvation by grace through faith. But don't miss this, okay? If we were in a community that had a greater uh, racial diversity, and in particular, if we were in a community where there was a greater consciousness of some of the difficulties of being in a minority culture in a majority context, then you would have a whole different lens on this, right? This is a letter about racism. Do you see this? You got a bunch of Jews. This is a race of people. And then a bunch of Gentiles show up. And when the Gentiles show up, the Jews refuse to sit at the same table with them. And they back off from them. Is this beginning to sound at all familiar, right? We, we, have, we have the, in a, in, a, in a white majority context, we have the uh, ability to just look at that purely through a, through a theological lens. This is a very human story with, with a grave racial, ethnic implications. And part of what Paul is rebuking is the jack verticality. Your theology is bad. But he's also rebuking the endemic racism to say we, I mean at the core of racism is the claim that I am better than you and we are better than y'all. Right? That's what's happening here. And so when you read this, I was I, I spent some time working in a university context with a number of people that weren't white, that weren't like me. And it was so helpful to be in their community and have them point things out to me that like, man, I could read this all day long and I just didn't have a life experience that would force me to see it from that perspective or enable me to do that. And so I would just encourage you when you read Galatians, don't stay in this particular theological bent and blind yourself to the racial implications of this because that's, that's, a, that's a big part of the story of what's going on in Galatians. Groovy? Okay, let's see. Uh, go to the back page. Let's see. Themes you're going to want to see as you, as you chase through it. Freedom, sonship, slavery. Okay? The opposite of free is slave. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. The opposite of freedom is slavery. The opposite of us slave is us son. Okay, so Paul is framing it out. You live in a house, and in that house, you are either the child of the one who owns the home, and as such, you are free, 
or you are the slave who does the work in the home. And there's a major theme that runs through Galatians, and it's, it's part of his defense. He's like, you're not slaves, you're free. You're not slaves, you're sons, right? So watch that as you walk, as you walk through it. The freedom, the slavery, the sonship, major themes there. And do not, here's what I want you to do. Do not translate sonship to daughtership, okay? Don't translate. We, we, we have a tendency to say we're sons and daughters of the king, okay? Paul doesn't say that. And when he doesn't say that, when he doesn't say you're a daughter of the king, right? When he invites you into sonship, he's not excluding the ladies. He's inviting you higher up and deeper in. Because in his cultural context, it's the sons, it's the men that inherit everything. It's primogenitor, right? It's the eldest male is going to get everything. What he's saying is that men and women, both, you are treated as the heirs of the king, okay? So we have a tendency to try to make this language more inclusive, to say sons and daughters, and that's fine at some level, but I want you to understand that Paul is not excluding the women by talking about the sons. He's inviting you to be heirs with the men. The women are not excluded in the way that he's framing it. We just have a different cultural lens from which we view that. Does that make sense? Okay, we are all invited, we are all heirs, and it's all for us, male and female. This stuff comes to us. Okay, um, what do we got? Okay, let me, let me, so you'll see, I mentioned the vertical, the horizontal. Um, you'll see both aspects of the racial and the doctrinal, doctrinal so watch for that. Um, as I mentioned, the, the, so if we're going to get rid of the law, we still got to figure out what's going to constrain our behavior that's going to be the spirit-filled life. It's going to be the Holy Spirit. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. The fruit of the Spirit is this dramatically superior list. Watch that. Notice the logic of how this works in your life. You do not need to be constrained by the law. We live in a different era. God has a different function of dealing with us. But you are constrained. You are empowered. You are directed by the Spirit of God who lives in you. Right? If you want to dig down a little deeper on that, you might look at 1 Corinthians 2 into 3. You might look at Romans 8. These would be probably Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 2, Romans 8. Those are probably the most important texts on the Spirit-filled life, which is one of the most important concepts you could possibly understand. So that might be a thread that you'll pull on. And then finally, here's the last thing I want to hit. I want to talk more about this thing where Jesus says, there's two kinds of people in the world, except there's a third. There's the religious and there's the irreligious. Watch what Paul does with this, okay? This is so interesting. Go to the very bottom of the, of the back page. Paul's going to say, your old irreligion and your new religion are basically the same thing, okay? It's a very stunning claim. Look at what he says here. In chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods, okay? You gotta know, his audience here is a bunch of Gentiles that have become Christians. So when they were Gentiles, they were pagans, right? They were worshiping rocks. They were not Jews. They didn't follow the Ten Commandments. They were just a bunch of, you know, idolaters, a bunch of polytheists. They were, they were, they were pagans, right? Back in those days, when you did not know God, when you were one of them, check it out, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now, now you're Christians, right? Now you know God, or rather you're known by God. And as they're becoming, they're, if they come to this community and, they, and they're starting to adhere to the law, 
They're being circumcised. They're believing what they're being told about their need to have external adherence to the, to the law. They've gone from irreligion into religion. And look at how Paul characterizes it. He says, formerly when you didn't know God, right, you were slaves to those who are not gods. But now that you do know God or rather are known by God, how is it that you are, notice this, turning back to those weak and miserable principles. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? He says, you were slaves in irreligion, and now you're becoming slaves to religion. And it's the same friggin' thing. Stop it. Don't go back by going, what you think you're doing is going forward, but you're really just going back, and you've been invited to something altogether different. This is exactly how Jesus frames things. You think there's two ways to live. And you think that religion is better than irreligion. But self-righteousness is no better than unrighteousness. And what you need is imputed righteousness. Come to Christ. Cling to him for his grace. That's what he's saying. Does that that make sense? It's a very Jesus-y thing for him to say. He says, you're observing special days, months, seasons, and years. You think you're getting, you're trying to get points for the things that you're doing. But we left points behind because the great point giver has given us full credit. Dig it? Okay, that's what's going on in Galatians, and we can probably stop. Well, I'll give you guys a minute. Question or comment or anything else you want to remark on before we head in? Harrison. Is Paul writing mostly to Gentiles who are like being deceived into thinking they have to be circumcised, or is he mostly writing to like Jews who are making those claims, or is it pretty mixed? It's, it's, it's mixed, right? So, so that comment right there is clearly to the Gentiles in the party that are, that are coming along and being Judaized. And so he's, I would say he's probably chiefly writing to the, Jew, to the Gentiles that are being Judaized, but certainly in that community, there's going to be a mix of people, right? His distress is not that Jewish Christians are continuing to live Jewishly. They're welcome to do that. His distress is that the Gentiles are jumping into this and thinking they need to do it. And that's what he's super angry about. So it's a mixed community, but he's distressed that the Jews are deceiving the Gentiles and he's distressed that the Gentiles are believing the deception. Good? Okay. Good, good, good. All right, so this week, if you like, go read Galatians. This might give you some things to notice and I would love to hear for all of these things. As you go, make, as you go reading these on your own, I'd love to hear what discoveries you're making. We'll do it again next week.